Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julia Figueres. This week, your Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra shines a bright light on women in classical music with a composer, a soloist, and a conductor, all representing. Back in our studios after way too long away are RPO Principal Flute, Rebecca Gilbert, and the music director of the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra, Joanne Folletta. Also in our studios today, we have a couple of students who are involved with Rock Restorative, Kevin Wade and Byron Bounds. Uh, the Rock Restorative, this organization, a collaborative organization, is um, this is the organization that the Flute Concerto will be dedicated to. So we will talk about that as well. It's a busy, busy podcast. Nice to have you here, Joanne. Good to be here. Thank you, Julia. And it's so nice to have you here as well, Rebecca. Thank you, Julia. And guys, good to have you here, Kevin. Hey. And Byron. <laughs> oh, it's great to be here. Thanks. So uh, let's start off with actually the overture by Germaine Taifair. This is um, Joanne. I, I don't think I have ever heard this piece before. Where did you find it? Well, you know, I worked with the Women's Philharmonic a while ago in San Francisco, and that was our mission, to find pieces by women, not only contemporary, but pieces of the past. And so we discovered a lot of jewels like this, and uh, uh, Jermaine Taifair was really very respected during her lifetime. She was a member of Les Cis, the, the sort of... Uh, kind of new kids on the block in France, in Paris, who were rebelling against um, the Impressionists and their, their kind of dreamy music uh, with this fresh new sound. And she, uh, she wrote a wonderful harp concerto as well, which I've recorded, and, and this fabulous little overture, which she intended to be an overture of a comic opera. So it's filled with, like, good spirits. It's a real bustling little piece. Yes. Bustling and brassy and good fun and, and over in a flash far too soon. Yes. Yes. It's a it's a lovely piece. Uh, after that, oh, by the way, does, are you going to be using a harpsichord in that? Because I saw in, in the um, in the instrumentation that there's a harpsichord, and I thought, well, that's a little fun. It It, it is, and it has quite a prominent part. You'll hear it. And it's not, uh, you know, sort of like a cembalo Baroque harpsichord. It's really out there, and uh, it just shows a kind of irreverent sort of sense of fun that the composers Lacey's had, and she did too. They were all about thumbing their nose. They were. And, you know, they even have, a, she has a tiny little... Uh, melancholy section. But you know it's faux. You know it's not real. I mean, they just were kind of making fun of the old guys and uh, uh, in a way that's totally charming and funny. Now, after that comes this piece of music I referred to. It's a work by Christopher Rouse um, with the Rochester Connection. Christopher Rouse taught at the Eastman School of Music for many years. And um, Christopher Rouse also died in September which was a sudden and very deep loss for um, the music world. Um, and did you know him at all, Joanne? I knew him slightly, yes, yes. And, and did you get to meet him, Rebecca? No, sadly, I did not ever meet uh, Christopher Rouse. In fact, I was writing to invite him to the performance since this was such an, you know, where he wrote it. I thought he'd be interested in coming back on the actual day he died. So the timing was very bad. I never made a connection with him. I did get to interview him once, and um, and he was charming and witty and lovely. And at the end of it, I closed with this piece of music of his. It's a percussion piece called Bonham, and it's based on the uh, drum riff from When the Levee Breaks by Led Zeppelin. And I remember starting this piece to send him out on his way, and he just looked at me and said, I can't believe you're playing this. <laughs> a wonderful man. So he wrote this piece, this flute concerto. And... Um, why did you choose to play? Because I, I know that 
in a sense, this was your decision, Rebecca. And I, were you in on this as well, Joanne? Well, this was interesting because the the uh, Rochester um, Philharmonic Management called me and said that Rebecca was a soloist, which I was thrilled about. And they said, and she wants to do the Rouse Concerto. And I stopped for a moment and I said, she does know about the piece, right? She, she Because this, in, in a way, may be the most profound flute concerto in our repertoire. And it deals with a subject that's quite difficult. Uh, I suppose one can see it in completely musical terms, on musical terms only, but, but that's not the point of it. Christopher wrote it because of a terrible tragedy. And I just wanted to be sure that she knew, but of course she was way ahead of me. She did know, and, uh, and that was probably why she wanted to do the piece, to make this statement about uh, the world and, uh, and in, in a way, of course, the, the healing of the world because it's not only that it's tragic, it's very hopeful as well. You knew about the tragedy, obviously, when you picked this piece. So why don't you explain to us about that centerpiece? Because this will begin and end with uh, a movement um, called, well, Avram, which is uh, Celtic for song. But in the middle, right in the middle, the longest movement is this piece, this elegy. And why don't you explain to us what exactly this is all about, Rebecca? So the elegy, while Christopher Rouse was writing the piece, he learned of the violent and tragic death of a two-year-old boy at the hands of two ten-year-old boys. And um, so the piece was already in process, but when he heard this news, uh, he was very moved. He himself had a two-year-old son at the time, and the way he describes it, he just couldn't get the images because there was a lot of, there's a lot of... um, uh, video footage of the boys leaving the mall where they left and he just couldn't it was so chilling and graphic and painful he felt he needed to do something with the emotions and so he wrote this elegy which is a way to lift up the spirit of the boy and the innocence and purity of youth um, in the face of this chaotic treachery Um, so I came to want to play this piece after a long journey. I was recommended to play this piece when I first came to Rochester. Uh, I came to Rochester in 1996. The piece was written in 1993. It was premiered in 93. And uh, at the time, I, I, I was not that interested. I had There were other concertos that I wanted to play, and it was recommended again 10 years later, and then I started researching. That's when I learned about the story. And at that moment, I said, oh, I'll never be able to play this piece. At that point, I did have my own two sons, and I just thought I, it's just too... Uh, just too painful to imagine standing up there and playing this piece. Um, so back in the fall, Eric Gaston, our uh, vice president of artistic, um, he came to me and he said, we'd love to feature you as a soloist. What concerto would you like to play? And my first words out of my mouth were, anything but the Rouse. <laughs> I, I just, and, and he said, oh, that's so funny because we really think it's such a great piece. We think you'd be great with it. And I said, okay, give me 24 hours. And I went and I picked up my boys from school and I had errands to run and I put the music on in the car and, and my oldest said, mommy, this is beautiful. You should play this. So I came to say yes. Christopher Rouse himself wrote about this. He said, in a world of daily horrors, too numerous and enormous to comprehend en masse, it seems that only isolated individual tragedies serve to sensitize us to the potential harm 
man can do to his fellow. And um, shining a light on that quote, this concerto is dedicated to rock restorative. And I thought that perhaps we could talk about what rock restorative is and um, have a chat with a couple of students who are involved in it. What is rock restorative, Rebecca? Well, I chose rock restorative because I wanted, I felt like I wanted something that was helping young people. I felt this music is, there's tragedy in it, but there's so much redemptive, restorative healing in the music. Um, and I wanted to make this a celebration of life, even in the face of this horrific tragedy. So I did a did some research and I learned about this program and I was so inspired by how much collaboration there was involved with how they do their work, that it wasn't just students, it was teachers and community members who were working together uh, to try and uh, help uh, help everybody create community so they felt uh, accountable to each other. So that's what I understand about Rock Restorative, and that's why I chose it. Um, I'd love to hear from Byron and Kevin about that. Yeah, it's a collaborative that teaches nonviolent communication skills, and, and this especially in a day and age when our communication skills are increasingly ratcheting up with social media and it becomes quicker, it becomes faster, it becomes much more immediate and much harder to step back and give a reasonable response. So I'll start with you, Kevin Wade. Kevin, um, how did you get involved with Rock Restorative? <laughs> um, they, they, they started me uh, at ninth grade. That's when I first heard about it. I don't think I actually joined until 10th grade. But um, what they did is that they pulled me aside. They were like, you seem perfect for uh, like help build relationships. Like I feel like you should be able to get a start on making this community better. So I took the opportunity and here I am right now. <laughs> and, and what about you, Byron? How did you get involved in it? So I began to get involved last year um, when I was selected to be a My Brother's Keeper. And My Brother's Keeper kind of partners with Rock Restorative. And so through there, they came in contact with me and they saw it as a good opportunity to get another student leader. And I saw it as a good opportunity to become a better student leader. So what do you guys actually do? Um, do you work one-on-one? -on -one? Do you work in groups? Kevin? At times, we, we do work on one-on-one uh, -on -one connections with students that uh, we know need that help with one-on-one -on -one situations. They may not be comfortable with dealing with multiple people. At times we do do on one-on-ones. And how do you find these people that really, Byron, need, need your support, need the help, need to learn the communication skills? Well, because obviously we're still students and we're very busy with school and everything, but we have a lot of rock responders in all sorts of different schools around the district, and so We'll be, in, we'll be in leadership and say there's an issue that needs um, some assistance w with on another floor or wherever, they'll call and they're able to um, get us and we'll be able to make contact and kind of start restoring that connection that was broken. So do you, do you have, Kevin, representatives in every school? Uh, yeah. So what's your school? Uh, I go to Leadership Academy. 
And Byron, where are you? I'm at the Leadership Academy as well. So tell me what this has done for you. Um, in my opinion, <laughs> this this made me uh, a better like student. It's, it's made me like a better friend because I I've built a better relationship with uh, my friends and peers around me than I did, I would have to say, before the program because they helped me with like uh, building up the confidence and, and getting to where I'm at. And Byron, what's it done for you? Um, so Rock Restorative has done a lot, I would say. It's really brought me out of my shell as far as being a leader goes because it's not always easy and it really puts you in connection with um, partnerships and groups and stuff to really grow that and I've been really thankful for it and just like Kevin said a lot of with the relationship building because that's really important in today's age with networking and everything everybody's so connected so being able to um, foster and maintain these connections is really important. What are you seeing Wade as as uh, or, um, I'm sorry what do you Kevin what are you seeing as the biggest issue I mean, you're in the midst of it. I'm just a grown-up, you know. I'm I'm gone. I'm out of school, so I don't really know. When you look around you right now, what are the biggest problems that teenagers, that school students, are facing? Um, from the ones I've talked to, it's it's been uh, mostly family at home issues that at times that um that they'll bring to the school. Uh, and most of the time, like, teachers will be the ones who frustrate them the most because they don't understand, and the students are too afraid to tell them. So that's what, that's why we'll have the one-on-ones. And what about you, Byron? Um, could you just repeat the question for me, please? Well, what do you see as the really big problems um, that need addressing now in, in the world of teenagers? I believe it's a lot of it is the vision. So a lot of students will get really trapped in this city and they won't really be able to see out of it. Um, they don't see the everything available outside of Rochester, all over New York State, all over um, the USA. There's tons of opportunities and they're open to you, but you have to be able to be open to them and grab them. So what are your opportunities, Byron? Where do you want to go? I would like to go to um, RIT. Um, I would like to start my pre-med track and become a pediatric psychologist. Perfect. And, and what, what about you, Kevin? Uh, I also plan on going to RIT uh, for business and marketing. So, so you, you could market his, <laughs> his, yeah. his, his, his uh, office program there, you yeah. see, mm-hmm. and make him like the world's best, most right. famous pediatric psychiatrist. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely do plan on keeping the connection. <laughs> Are you guys going to go to the concert? Yes. Yes, Saturday. Uh, now, this is a piece of music that you guys will have never heard. I never heard it until um, yesterday when I sat down and I listened to it from top to bottom. And I found it um, without knowing that center story to it because I chose not to look. I chose not to look into it. I just listened, mm-hmm. and, um, and 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 I wept. Mm-hmm. I wept through all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, one writer in the New York Times called him in his obit, I believe, called Christopher Rose um, a composer of rage and delicacy. And uh, this is um, Joanne, a piece that has 
uh, more delicacy than rage. It does, and it also has a basis in Celtic tradition, which I think is very beautiful. The um, the beautiful songs the, that are always tinged with uh, tragedy themselves. You know, anyone who knows of the the, the I- Ireland's problems and Northern Ireland's problems understand that it's it's not an easy place to be, but a beautiful place. So uh, it's wonderful that he, he chooses that. And uh, I think even not knowing of the particular tragedy that the elegy reflects, you you are overwhelmed by it. I mean, you're overwhelmed by the by the sense of loss, by the sense of, of there is anger in it, there is anger, but, but uh, it, it goes away, it goes away, and there's kind of a benediction at the end, and you think, okay, you know, life can, can be beautiful, and uh, there'll always be innocence, and there'll be the goodness in people, and it tells you about Christopher Rouse, of course, that that's what he believed, that despite this, 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 this cr- crime that was torturing him, thinking about it, he still believed that at the, at the end, uh, we are all good inside, and that that will be, that will be the the meaning of life. There are distinct flashes of anger in this piece, which I really appreciated, Rebecca, because with loss comes anger. I mean, it's one of the famous steps of grieving is anger, and um, and I, I had a very very um, I've had a very difficult year this year, very sad year this year, and um, so I. I feel very deeply the, um, the anger and the pain in this. So when you stand up there, both of you, and I'll start with you, Rebecca, how do you, how, do, how are you going to get through this? It's <laughs> <laughs> a great question. Um, well, first of all, I mean, I, I um, have listened to this piece probably a thousand times already. He, Christopher himself said he's listened to it about a thousand times. I was watching interviews uh, that he gave online the day he died. And, and it's, it's abs- I feel in some way at this point that I have somehow, I'm channeling something that's larger than myself. And f- probably the first 900 times I listened to it, I also am moved to tears. And yesterday when we rehearsed the elegy, I had tears. It's, it's almost impossible, but you have to somehow let it flow through you. And, and as, um, as Joanne just described, I mean, there's so much beauty in the world, even side by side. So I find that uh, so, so much comfort in the beauty and the redemption and the healing quality of the music. So um, I will, I'm, I pr- I'm pretty certain that I will have tears while I'm playing it. Um, in the third movement, but it will, there's also the beautiful, <laughs> fantastic scherzo that comes right after it, which is just a thrill ride, and then the gorgeous uh, closing movement. So so there's, I guess I'll be just um, going along with the ride and hoping that the audience will come with me. And, and there is um, a, that, that wonderful sense of there's peace at the end, as you said, Joanne. So, yes. so there's, something, there's, there's something to look forward to. Well, and in a way, you start from a place of light, and you end in a place of light. And I think that that journey needs those those uh, those points. I mean, you start in a very innocent way. You start with a beautiful chord in the harp and percussion, and you end with that beautiful chord in harp and percussion as a frame. Uh, but you journey towards something dark, uh, and that's important. And then you journey away from it. I was telling Rebecca today that, you know, when we're rehearsing it, we're stopping all the time and polishing a bar or talking about a rhythm, and then we do another little bit and stop again. 
But today we actually managed to go through the fifth and the first movement uh, without stopping. And that's when I realized that I have to be emotionally prepared for the entire journey uh, because it is amazing. And I think the orchestra, too, will probably be surprised tomorrow morning when we, we, we do the dress rehearsal and read through the entire piece at the place they're going to. So, uh, but, but the, the resolution is very hopeful and that uh, is something quite beautiful. And I think the fact that the resolution is hopeful is why it's so beautiful that this performance is dedicated to rock restorative because in the end, that's what this is about, is having to take that journey through dark and then come out of it in light, which is beautiful. And I thank you for making that connection, Rebecca. Thank you, Julia, for having us and talking about it. And I just hope that Christopher Rouse would be honored to know that we've done this and we've and we hope to, you know, expand on this collab this relationship that we have just started. It's a brand new relationship. And I am so grateful that um, these amazing young men are here to talk about it. And thank you, Ruth Turner, also for her leadership. Um, Ruth Turner is the director of the of the Rock Restorative Program. Now, on the other hand, there's quite a different journey that is taken, and um, in the second half for the Berlioz Symphonie Fantastique, and if, if this concerto is a journey through darkness to light, that's kind of a journey <laughs> from lightness to dark. To dark, it <laughs> it's is. It's the opposite. It is, and I'm glad there may be some some young people in the audience who have not heard this piece because it's always very surprising. I mean, to know that it was written in 1830, which is astonishing. Uh, but Berlioz was an astonishing artist, and uh, it, of course, begins with his great love of Shakespeare, which had just been translated into French around that time. So he was discovering Romeo and Juliet and, and Hamlet and all, and, and just fell in love. So he went to a performance uh, of Romeo and Juliet, and there he saw this beautiful Irish actress who'd come to Paris, Harriet Smithson, and he fell head over heels in love with her and he did everything he could to meet her and waited at the stage door and sent her presents and sent her letters she was just oblivious to him she didn't even know he existed she went back to to England and uh, in the meantime he sort of poured all of his passion and his longing for her into this piece and the piece is wild I mean it's we hear the beginning where he's falling in love and her theme and uh, uh, that music takes them to a great ballroom in Paris and the couples are dancing and he sees her across the room and she disappears, which she sort of did. Um, he uh, calls to her from a mountain and she answers and then disappears. Finally, in, in this dream that he has, he becomes so enraged that he kills her and uh, is actually tried and found guilty and brought to the guillotine and executed. This is all in the music. He's actually executed in the music. And he goes to hell. <laughs> I mean, it sounds, I know it sounds unbelievable, but he goes to hell and he finds out that she is there in hell. She's one of the, the witches now. And uh, so you're right. It goes from, from the very innocent beginning of, of just the, the most beautiful theme to a wild celebration in hell. I mean, so uh, only Berlioz could pull this off. I mean, you have to hear the music, you know that it works. And uh, he he uses every possible instrument and all kinds of strange effects and 
uh, it's it's amazing. It's it's astonishing every time we do it. It's probably also the only symphony ever where there is a beheading and you can hear the head rolling down the steps. That's right. No, he was very graphic about that. You can hear it plunking as it <laughs> rolls down the steps. Uh, uh, it is amazing the things he asked the orchestra to do. I mean, the, the from the growling on the trombone to the hitting the strings with the wooden part of their bows, and there's supposed to be the rattling of, of actual bones in, 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 in a graveyard. Um, it's frightening, but it's also fun. I mean, I'm making it sound very scary. It is scary, but it's tremendous fun as well. It is. It's a, it's, it's a real riot and he loved large uh, orchestras he did i mean he just thought large and everything and broke every rule i mean you can imagine listening to this music that schubert and mendelssohn were sort of writing their their uh their gentle romantic music and then here's this crazy man who's writing this this story of of, uh, of falling into a drug-induced slumber and dreaming that he's killed his beloved and, and and that he's executed and goes to hell and finds her i mean just who would think about that so so there's your moral by the way don't take drugs <laughs> you know right. right off the top uh, he, was he the first one to use trombones seriously in an orchestra no he wasn't but in that way yes i mean uh, mozart used it and, and Beethoven used it, of course, uh, but as as some sort of demonic sound. Yes, when we hear the third trombone just blasting as loud as possible, that that was never done before, and I'm sure the people who heard it for the first time were astonished at this piece. It always captures the imagination, and there's never a dull moment in no. this piece. <laughs> and every single instrument gets a moment. I mean, right down to the English horn having one of the most beautiful English horn solos ever written yes, yes. in this. And it's theater, too, because the English horn is playing a love duet with the oboe. The oboe is in the balcony. And all seems fine, except when at the end of that movement, she reaches out to him and sings to him, and he's no longer there. So again, it's a, this feeling of unrequited love. And with that great rumble of thunder, you yes, know there's trouble ahead. Yes. And, and in the, that's in the scene in the country. Um, so how did the audience, do you know how the audience, Joanne, responded to this the first time they heard it? You know, I think Berlioz had, had uh, it was very div divided in, in France. I mean, there were people who thought he was a great genius, and they were absolutely right. He was a great genius. Uh, and maybe not completely comprehensible, but he was a genius nonetheless. And then there were those who were horrified by him. Rossini said, well, it's just a shame that it isn't any music in it, <laughs> So, in this piece. There are pe people who just couldn't understand that that was music. It was just too crazy. It was too wild. And yet here we are, over a century yes. later, Loving and we're it. talking about it, we and we it. all love it. Yes. And <laughs> it's like the best thing ever, you know? It is. So I guess he was right he was right and it's tremendous fun it really is tremendous fun so what do you do joanne when you come to a piece like this that everybody knows and if they don't know it they sure are going to love it after hearing it for the first time what do you do when you approach this piece that that, that is so familiar do you try to tweak it do you let it speak for itself well that, that, of course, is very important. You let the composer be the voice, the voice on the page. But, of course, it's notes on a page, so you have to interpret that. He comes first, but most composers, I would say almost all composers, want the performers to take the piece and make it their own. So my, my uh, desire is really to get the musicians to take 
ownership of those crazy parts, you know, with the stopped horns and the the uh, colenio, and really get into them. So knowing that they're portraying this rather horrifyingly detailed portrait of what's happening, and that is really fun when the musicians start to sort of say, "Okay, I know what I'm doing. I know who I'm supposed to be. Uh, I can make this work." And uh, uh, it's really uh, great to see them step up and do that. So there is this, um, this great quote, any orchestra's personality grows out of its musicians. You may have even been the person who said that, Joanne. So I have well, to ask you. I believe you, it, yes. What is the RPO's personality? You know, they're a very, I was trying to put in words today to myself, they are a super intelligent orchestra because I've noticed that any little little suggestion I've made to them, and part of my job is really that, offering possibilities, offering different ways of thinking about things, they have done and never forgotten and understood instantly. I've said vague things and they understand them. It's almost as if they're so in tune with the music, they're so in tune with, with what it means. It's inspiring. and. And they have all the technical skills to bring that to life. So in a sense, it's a very musical experience for me, which is uh, uh, not, not uh, it's rarer than you would think. And so it's been delightful to work with them. With so many women on the program and so many women in the room, um, I want to talk about being a trailblazer because you were, I mean, you were told you shouldn't be conducting because women don't. And um, it, this, this one thing that, that you said once, you wrote, you wrote the scathing and uncomfortably accurate criticism of your teachers drove you forward. Do you feel like a trailblazer, Joanne? No, and I have to say honestly, I don't. Oh, I always feel a bit guilty when people say that I am because truly I went into conducting because I was in love with the orchestra and I was in love with music from the age of seven, and that's all I wanted to do with my life. So it was at the age of seven I didn't realize that women didn't do that, and my parents were very open to uh, my sister and myself doing whatever we we really wanted to do, so we didn't have any boundaries on us. But. Um, but I never made that choice to be a conductor because I wanted to show that I could do it. I simply was so drawn to the orchestra and to being the catalyst that could hopefully create a landscape where those extraordinary musicians could be the artists that they are. Rebecca, you have been a bit of a trailblazer in your time, too. You've done an awful lot of really interesting work with various musical styles and genres, um, you have led your section for a very long time. Um, you have deeply explored meditation and and nonviolence. Do you, same question, do you see yourself as a role model, as, as a trailblazer at all? Well, I, I guess I hope I'm a role model, um, but as far as a trailblazer, I just feel lucky that I was born at a time when there were not as many um, barriers or obstacles for 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 me as a woman to be able to you know live my dream i fell in love with the flute about the same age and as as joanne very young and and i did not come from a musical family um and i was lucky that uh, my parents were able to support me along the way and 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 there were there was lots of opportunity for me to find my way and to, to live out my dream. And I feel lucky because I know that generations before me did not have that same uh, opportunities. There were much more obstacles. So I guess I just feel lucky. And um, 
yeah, as far as a role model, I, I, um, I, I like feeling with my teaching that I, I teach at Nazareth College right now, and I've taught my whole career from when I was even in high school. I loved having beginners to work with. But with my students, I just feel like it's, it's a, it, uh, my, my message to them is that everything's possible. And to not ever, uh, if, there's a, if there's a problem, then find a solution and, and just know that you can make anything happen. So um, I think if there's anything that I hope that is a role model, I think it's that message that there are no barriers. Uh, Kevin and Byron, you are role models. You have embraced this, uh, this job, as it were, to be role models. Do you find it a heavy burden at all, Kevin? Um, at times, I'd, I'd have to say yes. Uh, only basically for for the part that um there there are other people or other because uh, I'm a senior there are other seniors that want this position but may not act upon it and like they feel like they have the same responsibility as me so they like to challenge in a way uh, my position and your response uh, I I usually <laughs> I usually leave it be. It's either I, I give them the, the little talk that if you honestly do want to do what I do, then you have to commit to what I've been doing. Like you have to help the students around you and not uh, let it go on or not help it in a way. Byron, you're nodding your head as you've embraced this important position as a role model do you find it challenging? Um, yeah, so I have, I have very much so embraced it. And it can be challenging because oftentimes maybe the majority is not doing what you're doing or not doing what you feel like what is, what is right, what, what they should be doing. And so oftentimes like with this position your goal is to try to um change people make people just make relationships better overall but it can be very hard when you're when you're one or two or three and they are 30 and it's it's just very hard to make connections sometimes but it's all it's all just work you just got to work at it i want to thank you both for coming in uh byron Bounds and Kevin Wade. It's been a pleasure from Rock Collaborative, uh, Rock Restorative rather. And um, also, thank you so much for spending time with us, Rebecca. It's uh, always an honor to have you in our studios. Thank you, Julia. And speaking of honors, we have uh, someone who's writing the book here. And um, you've had such a great year. Uh, so many things bestowed on you, 20 years with the Buffalo wow. Philharmonic. I'm, I'm very lucky, Julia, very lucky. And big thank you to you because I know that you're, you're listening to us and you're playing us, and that means a great deal. It means a, a great deal to have you with us. Uh, if uh, you would like information about the, the Rochester Philharmonic season and this concert, you can go to rpo.org. I'm Julia Figueres, and this podcast is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting.